Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Traversing the Darkness. My name is Justin, the Witch of Enchantment, and I am joined by Owlvine Green. Today, <laughs> we're having a trauma purge. I don't know. Is that what it's called? <laughs> I think that's I a know. good description. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's trauma purge. We're almost to the end of the season, and this is not actually the episode that's supposed, <laughs> that's supposed to be going up today, but... Uh, the last topic we tried, we just couldn't vibe with. And we just wanted to bring something a little more personal, talk a little bit more in depth um, about some of the stuff we've been through and maybe the, some of the stuff that's, uh, some of the hurdles we've overcome on our journey, not just to witchcraft, but just to be who we are as people today. I did want to put a disclaimer. We're just now starting this episode, so I don't know where this conversation is going to go. But just trigger warning. Yeah, all the <laughs> trigger warnings. <laughs> all the trigger warnings. We are going to just kind of talk freely and we're not sure what's going to make it in the episode and what's not. So just go into this knowing, yeah, all the trigger warnings may apply. <laughs> so uh, when when we talked about doing this last night, I... I, there's a couple of events in my life that I feel like were poignant, but when thinking about doing this, uh, there's a running theme throughout my life that I've had and I've never attributed it to this event that I didn't even know happened to me until I was an adult. <laughs> and it's uh, uh, this deep-seated mistrust and being weary of people and uh, I was abused. I was beat when I was a child and never knew it. Gosh. Uh, I didn't find out till I was 17 years old. Wow. So you repressed I, the memory. I completely re repressed the memory. I was, I believe, four or five years old. I guess it was in the newspapers. It was like a whole big trial. Oh, my God. Gosh, wow. I have absolutely no memory of it. But I was, as I was getting older, my mother had told me that, you know, I think, I wonder if this is why you have such a, a problem, like why you're always scared of people. As a child, I was scared of everybody. I wouldn't, wouldn't like stay the night at anybody's house. My mm -hmm. grandparents, my cousins, I like, I wouldn't go anywhere. I was very fearful of people. And she was like, you know, the whole time growing up, I didn't know if that's what it was. And I'm like, I'm 17 and you're just now telling me that I was beat to a bloody pulp, essentially, when I was four years old by the babysitter. Um, yeah, that story came to my mind. And I don't, I don't know why. Mm. It's like a, a deep-seated thing. And I've tried to do, not like past life regression, but you know, when you try to like restore previous memories. Yeah. Like, I, I can't remember what that's called, but you know, when you try to pull, like suppress memories, like what you said, I've never been able to, but um, it's something that keep, kept playing in my head last night and today, um, because I feel like a lot of the reasons why we do the things we do, at, the things we do as adults, I think they have some sort of answer or reason during our childhood. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think... Yeah, I mean, all of those large experiences 
um, and the ones that feel large, right, because it doesn't actually have to be anything that anyone else thinks is a, a big happening. But all of those things absolutely shape who we are. And I think that's the importance of shadow work. Hey, um, you know, this term shadow work sounds a little bit maybe confronting or whatever, but that's all it is, is, is looking at that stuff, looking at that old stuff and whatever the process is that we need to take you know, with that, whether it's just sitting with it and, and letting our minds kind of untangle and, and figure out and process, you know, I, I'm under the, like my sort of motto is that whether you know something is affecting you or not, it is, you know, it's like all that old stuff is affecting you, whether you're aware or not. So you may as well look at it. You may as well deal with it because <laughs> either way, it's like showing up in your life and probably, in more of a detrimental way if it's something that you're trying to suppress or run away from. Unfortunately, that's just kind of the way that it works. And how you know, fucked up is it? How yeah. violating is it to not? I know it feels violating. I, I felt violated when she told me because how mm. does something happen to you? And then it affects you and you don't even remember the event. Yeah, you know I, I, mean? I absolutely do. I've got, I had a friend who, had something similar. He, in in his case, he didn't know what the thing was, but he knows that he couldn't remember um, several years of his life as a kid. And he was like, I know something really bad happened during that time. And at the time, I haven't seen him for a few years now, but at the time he was like, I don't want to know what it is. Like if I've blocked it out, I'm really scared to find out what that is. And it's interesting you mention it too. I've had something recently coming up and I'm not going to go into details because I actually don't know if there's a repressed memory there or not but I've kind of been tipped off in this way and I'm wondering if something happened to me as a kid and I don't really know so I'm just sitting with it I don't know if any information's going to come forward or what but yeah having that I think violation is a great way to explain it like because it's you and your mind and your memories like they're the most personal thing about you really aren't they and not being able to access them like I can only imagine how violating that feels it's it's like a, another person has taken over that that part of you and mm. I, don't, I looking back I don't even remember why she told me like what triggered her to to tell me about it but I just remember feeling shocked. Like, what do you mean? I was like, I, I it, it, it was like in the papers, like there was a whole cross-examination, a whole trial, a whole thing going on. I, ha I had to testify. I had to go on the stand. I don't remember any of this. I have You're no recollection crazy. whatsoever. Yeah, none. I apparently had open cuts and bruises all from my butt all the way down to my feet. I was completely black and blue. I, from what my mom told me, she, I guess I was screaming or crying. I did something she didn't like. I didn't listen. And she picked up a, one of my wooden trucks because it's eighties. Um, <laughs> like one of those hard wooden <laughs> trucks and literally just beat me with it. Oh my just God. beat me to a bloody pulp. Um, how do I not remember that? Mm. that's just kind of crazy but um it has to do something with my my deep-seated mistrust or my fear of betrayal <laughs> i can understand that yeah and for it to happen so young as well like we don't have any logic at that age like there's no None. 
thinking your way around it or understanding it on any level. You know, it's just, yeah, people are bad and scary and they can really fucking hurt me. And don't go any, and yeah, you don't want to go anywhere. And I, I thought that was odd. It's like a piece of yourself you don't really understand. Because I've always, I mean, I joke even now about how I always think everyone's trying to kill me. Like, I, I say that a lot because I genuinely you do, think and that. that makes so much sense now. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's so strange to me. And even, young, like, I always had this fear when I was younger and I never knew where it came from. That some somebody was going to do something to me that was going to hurt me. <laughs> I would not, I did not have sleepovers with anybody. And all because I would, I'm assuming this traumatic event that I didn't even know fucking happened. Wow. Until, you know, 15 years later, what, how, however much later it is. It's just crazy the way your brain, your, the way your brain processes trauma, I guess, mm. in, in, a, in, a, in an attempt to protect you, I guess. <laughs> Definitely. Well, that's what I understand it as. So when you have those repressed memories, it is just the brain going, I can't deal with this. So I'm going to set it aside, lock it in a safe box and continue on. But again, of course, it still affects you. Like you said, you know, your patterns of speech and the way that you're thinking and believing and, and behaving in the world, you know, has come from that. And then it's like, I think, you know, at that point where your brain knows it's safe. And I think we can go through the process of helping that as well, because some people can go their entire lives just never looking at it again. But we can do the work of saying, okay, we're safe, you know, by working with deity or a therapist or talking to a trusted friend or whatever the process might be and actually bring that stuff up again and and actually, you know, the brain be able to deal with it later on. Agreed. So I wanted to ask you, do you have any religious trauma? I do. Um I feel like I probably, maybe I have less than others. I don't have any really terrible stories of being in the church. Although I was in the church from the age of about four to the age of, uh, I think about 23. I think I was 23 when I finally decided I'm done with church, even though I hadn't been going at that point for a couple of years. It still took me a few years to go, okay, I'm not going. Um, definitely I had a lot of fear tied up in that. Um you know, fear of damnation and all that kind of thing. And, you know, just all of those, I guess, kind of typical fears that are put mm -hmm. onto someone growing up in that space. Um, Were you ever me, privy to like the hypocrisy of, of the church? I didn't feel that way. Um, what I really took away from it um, in my teenage years and early 20s, I had a real issue being female and I think this goes back to the issue with my parents. So ever since I was very young, my parents were divorced, uh, sorry, divorcing and getting back together. They were breaking up and getting back together and eventually divorced. Um, so there was a lot of, um, you know, instability there. Um, and then I just, as a teenager, I just had massive issues with my mum. Like I just hated her because I hated myself, right? I hated yeah. myself. I hated her. I hated my sister as well. So I have two sisters. There's one that's very close in age to me and one that's nine and a half years younger. So the nine and a half years younger one never had an issue with her. She was a baby, whatever. But my closest sister, we're only 17 months apart. So we're very close. Um, hated her as well. And what I saw in the church in, in, 
my later church particularly that I went to. So we were talking about this earlier. I went to two different churches in my life, like regularly. There was the one I grew up in and there was the one I chose to go to when I was 16. Uh, maybe I was just 15, actually. I think I might have been 15. Anyway, um, and until I was, you know, in my 20s. <clears throat> and at that church, it was very much like the boys were cool. So they had a lot of rules there about, like, girls and boys not fraternising too much. Um, there was, like, you know, if you were ever, for example, in the car alone um, with the opposite gender, you had to call someone on the phone, um, you know, a leader or something like that, so they could just, you know, it was very like keep accountable, all that kind of stuff. But all the boys were really cool. And it was the boys that were on stage and, you know, all that kind of thing. And it was like, oh, like I very much felt like a lesser person being female. Um, so that just played into this hate that I had of myself and my femininity. And, you know, I think what really played into that was a feeling of powerlessness, mm -hmm. um, but also just the way that like the shrillness of my mother and things like that at the time, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I would say um, at least that I can think of off the top of my head, that was kind of my biggest religious trauma. I think that still, does it still affect me? I was just going to ask you, does it still affect no, me? I don't think so because I'm inhabit a very female centric space now which is the witchcraft space and it's actually really interesting having gone through that experience and being in this space now is it's like literally the opposite ends of the pendulum swing um mm -hmm. and i find myself i think fairly balanced now like i actually don't like a lot of the rah rah woman power stuff that i see i feel like it's unbalanced in the other direction um so these are things I'm always kind of keeping in mind. And I do actually feel very comfortable in my femininity now. I have a really wonderful husband as well who is very supportive of it too. You know, he never sort of degrades me. Like I've seen other men, you know, kind of maybe have those kind of like, oh, you're just a female attitudes. Um you know, he's very supportive and he's kind of given me that stability. Um, and I had heard that a long time ago as well that, you know, the highest expression of masculinity actually enables the highest expression of femininity because masculinity creates safety when it is, um, I suppose, expressed in a healthy way. And so I feel like I've really been given that gift over time. And I feel like with deity as well, like I've always been drawn to male deity, even in the witchcraft space. So there are females that I work with, um, but I kind of feel like the central uh, spiritual connection I have is male. That's so interesting to me because I completely opposite. <laughs> I am so triggered <laughs> by the male uh, energy when it comes to, honestly, with anything. Like men in general just scare me uh they just make me they innately nervous mm -hmm. uh talking to men whether it's romantically friendship wise i just have this deep-seated uncomfortability when it comes to men it doesn't even have to be men it could be teenage boys they it's they just make me yes it makes me uncomfortable uh and that is so much rooted in my experience in the church just because I feel like I was kind of riding this line of masculinity and femininity because everybody obviously knew that I was gay, even though I had never said that I was gay. 
hello, just listen to me. Not trying to be stereotypical, <laughs> but it just, it, it I am who I am. It is what it is. <laughs> and I never quite fit anywhere within the church. And then, you know, growing up, I saw things happening in the church that I just found to be so disturbing. Um, and I never understood why there wasn't a connection with the divine feminine. I, ne I never quite understood that or the, the lack of reverence for, for women. Um, it never quite made sense to me. And then all, all the boys and the men, the adult men just behaved so badly. You know, there was a youth pastor that was having a inappropriate relationship with a minor. I'm going to put it that way. Um, and then, you know, the same night you're at the pulpit preaching about the sanctity of marriage and the sin of homosexuality. It's like, you're a fucking predator. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> you're a predator. Uh, I, I don't know. As, as I got older, I could not wait to run from the church, <laughs> to run from the church. I was like, I'm going to get out of here as quickly as I can. Cause these mm. people are fucking crazy. When and did you leave? So, so I, I, we first entered the church. It, this is such a vivid memory and I don't really know why, but I can remember being maybe seven or eight. We were upstairs in my parents' townhouse. I don't know why this sticks out of my head. And the window was open. The wind's blowing. My parents are sitting on the floor. I'm sitting on their bed and they're, the Bible's open and we're just reading and we're talking about reading this new Bible. We had never been religious before. My dad grew up like Pentecostal. His mother was Pentecostal. And um, this woman that my mom worked with, her uncle was a pastor of a Baptist church. And I guess they had been a couple times. So we were going to go and basically we, we, we found God essentially. Cause my mother was an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic as a child. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, raging, like run people over raging alcoholic. She would wake my dad up in the middle of the night when I was an infant to come pick her up at the bar. So I don't have any memories of this, but I guess for a couple years for till I, I was like three or four years old, my dad was doing this. And then eventually he was like, if you don't stop, we're getting a divorce. Like I can't do this anymore. Um, so that's really when religion started. And then I would say until I was probably 19, maybe 19, I got, mm -hmm. I got married when I was 18 to Rachel and we had, <laughs> we had a, a a ceremony in the church. We had we had to have a reception that had no dancing because you're not allowed to dance or drink. Oh, boring! So boring. You're not That's allowed. That's to... wedding. <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed to drink or dance, but you know you can. You know, be a predator. I guess That's diddle okay. children. Yeah, yeah, diddle children and have extramarital affairs. That's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the logic of it all. Uh, so we had another reception with Rachel's family where we could do that. And Rachel and I have talked about this extensively. We were both each other's out for very different reasons. And I was mm -hmm. so fearful, even as an 18 year old to just get up and leave that 
she was my way out. Like getting married was my way out of that situation. I could get out and move on and, you know, kind of hide in plain sight. But it was terrible. I hated it. I, I hated every moment of it. It was a fucking cult. Hypocrites. They're disgusting people. <laughs> I have no like regrets about saying any of it. And just this yeah. sexual assault that happened that I've witnessed, that I've heard. It's just disgusting. The, the toxic max masculinity, like all of it, it's just gross. It's fucking disgusting to me. The patriarchy is real. <laughs> it's interesting to me that um, it was 19 that you left the church because I feel like for me that's when it kind of started as well. Um, so at that point um, I'd been through a lot of years of depression and up and down and I'm someone that very much takes on the shoulds and the expectations of everyone else. So there was a lot of rules in the church. And so I was taking all those on and it eventually got to the point when I was 19 that I had my first panic attack. And I didn't know what that was at the time, but I had this massive panic attack. And luckily I was with friends at the time and they kind of helped me through the whole thing. Um, but that was the first of a series of panic attacks, which eventually led me to leaving the church. Um, and, and again, it was all of those expectations. It was too much for me. Like I needed to just not have all of that on me anymore. Um, you know, I think boundaries obviously are a good thing. Um, I think sometimes it can be helpful to take on people's suggestions of boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a point where the, a step back needs to happen. Sometimes people need the separation um, to actually figure out like, well, what are my boundaries? What am I actually okay with here? Um, and, and sort of figure out the self in placement to the world. So I feel like that started to happen for me at 19. Um, but again, it took several years of like kind of going a bit and not going and going and not going until I finally went, okay, I'm stepping away <laughs> for good, you know? I haven't looked back since, but I just find it interesting that it's at the same age, 19. So what was your, like during, during the process of, of being in the church, what was your coping, coping mechanism? Cause you said like at 19 is when the, like the panic attacks started. Were the panic attacks cause you felt like there was too much pressure or that you couldn't live up to the pressure. And then how did you cope with it up until that point? Like, did you struggle with depression? during that time because i know i did I, I had a lot of depression and self-hatred and I, I suffered from an eating disorder mm -hmm. so like i had what did that look like for you did you internalize i know you hated being like you hated yourself how did that manifest I did. well listen like i want to make it very clear that all of this stuff is only partially to do with the church like the church is right. just one thing in you know my kind of traumatic childhood. <laughs> one one um, root in the tree. <laughs> that's right, exactly, one root in the tree. Um, so I was depressed from the age of 13, very, very heavily depressed. Um, and it went through different stages. So it, it could be months at a time, it could be years, and it always felt different when it would sort of hit again. Um, I don't fully know how to describe that, but that's how I remember it, being like that. Um, in terms of how I coped with being in the church, I mean, I get, oh, and all that stuff going on, I didn't really, like, I was just a depressed person 
just trying to survive really um mm -hmm. i went through a period where i was cutting for a while um so i was self-harming for a couple of years um in my mid kind of teenage years um mm -hmm. that actually obviously not that i would ever say that it would be a good thing for someone but it really really felt like it was helping me at the time um it was the release valve that i could not get anywhere else in my life um home was awful um by that time um my mum was single so she'd had her second divorce um and it was just me my sisters and her and home was awful um and and again i know now that a lot of that was from me do you know what i mean there was all of this all of this emotion and turmoil within me and i was just projecting that out onto the world so that made the people who were around me their lives a lot harder too those who i felt safe with because i never expressed myself anywhere except for with those who i was most you know close with um right so cutting was a way that i was um dealing with it all um and then once i started having panic attacks so at 19 that's when i started smoking so I started smoking cigarettes and I had one that I think I'm, I think there was, now I'm just thinking about the timeline. I think before that big panic attack, there had been another smaller one. And I was with my best friend in the car at the time and she was smoking. Um, and she's like, look, have a cigarette. It'll make you feel better. And I was like, it actually does. Like this, this feel, I feel calmer, <laughs> like this is good, you know? And so then when that big panic attack hit, I think that was the moment that I, started smoking from there um, and did up until a few years ago. I quit, I don't even know how long ago it was now, four or five years maybe. God, I can't believe it's been that long, um, which is great. Um, yeah, so those were kind of my coping mechanisms at the time, but my great desire and, you know, was always to be accepted and to find a place of belonging. Um, it still is, honestly, if I'm, if I'm going to be real, that's still something that I'm searching for. And I think maybe that has roots in the broken down family, perhaps. Right. Um, yeah, but I just always wanted to be accepted, which was why it was such a big deal for me to step away from the church, because I had a lot of friends in the church, a lot of friends, big group, you know, that I'd grown up with for several years, you know, from that age of 16 through to mid-20s or was earlier than mid 20 early 20s so I felt like I had to step away from them in a way as well and and some of them are still in my life many of them aren't but that's kind of natural drifting as well um so that's kind of what that process was like for me yeah that's a big one you step away from your whole life essentially yeah like it was everything. everyone your whole social everyone circle from my past absolutely like because I, I went to a christian school as well i didn't mention that so everyone from there except for my best friends so i've got a couple of best friends who left the church around the same time as me and we've kept in contact but yeah other than that it was yeah cutting off half of life which is funny because i i've realized i'm actually very good at that i don't think it's a good thing but <laughs> i i do that i will cut everything off and walk away and that's it and I've kept that pattern in my life. And that is probably the, you know, again, the breakdown of the family, dad right. constantly leaving, divorces, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, I never thought I was like that because I've always been someone who's very, very sentimental, like far too sentimental. And I don't do it as much now, but as a kid, I always wanted to keep everything. Like I was a hoarder as a child, um, which is quite well, particularly as a teenager. And again, in those sort of 
early 20s years and still I started to move house and then I was like all right I can't be keeping all this stuff this is fucked, you know too much shit that's right too much shit get rid of it get gone and I actually love the process of clearing out now like it's very um it's it's a magical act that I consistently encourage other people to do because it's so powerful for me you know just shifting things out like as above so below makes such a big difference kind of um enlightening i think that even across the globe in australia that the way that religion isolates people is so similar to the u.s (laughs) like the experience is very similar because that's how i grew up being I, i had a fear of that i had a fear of if i was found out you know, when, when your life is consumed by the church, I didn't go to a Christian school. Um, and I'm not really sure why, when I think about it, I'm not sure why I've never asked my parents that because we were super involved in the church. My dad had a prison ministry, so he would go and take a couple other, uh, men of the church and they would go preach at different prisons here, here in Florida mm-hmm. and, you know, bring them to Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Um, so, you know, hallelujah. Uh, so they would do that. You know, we went to church three, four, five times a week. We went to revivals. I was in a children's singing group. So we were like super, super involved. And, you know, when you put that pressure on a child who knows that they're gay, everything is conditional. And that still Mm. fucks me up today because I am 36 years old and I still don't actually know who I am. And I know like we never actually know who we are, but like I'm, I over the years have just created certain parts of myself, I think to feel safe. Mm -hmm. And I'm just now trying to break down those things and really try to understand who I am outside of all the, safety nets that I thought were going to keep me safe. And really they just keep me from being the best version of myself, like the, who I, who I am, yeah. you know, cause I, I spent all my years in the church just praying and crying to God that I would not be gay. Like just mm-hmm. fix it, just fix it, just fix it, just fix it. And then anything that happened in my life, I took anything negative that happened in my life. I just took it as, a punishment from God. Mm. Like you're still not right. You're still having these urges. You're still attracted to boys. And the, the pivotal aspect of that was a sexual assault. When I was 12, there was a boy in the neighborhood who I was friends with. Um, and his name was Chris and he was over at my house. We were kind of, you know, wrestling and that turned into, um, you know, a knife to my back, a, a sexual assault situation. And that was just one of those moments where I thought I, I just felt disgusting mm-hmm. because I felt like this is God telling me, this is like the rationale of a 12 year old. You know what I mean? Cause you don't understand that this is happening because I'm refusing to be clean. I'm refusing to be right with God and I can't make it go away. So this is my punishment. This is my punishment for this. Mm. Now as an adult, I'm like, no, he he was just fucked up. And 
I was fucked up in the head. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it, I, and the thing about it too is my, one of my cousins walked in the front door and saw it happening and then just closed the door and left, just left me there. Just left betrayal. me there. That betrayal, thing. betrayal, betrayal, yeah. betraying the fag. Like that's just like a feeling I've always had. Like I, I'm not deserving of loyalty. I'm not deserving to be protected. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And you know, much of my experience in the church and my coping was just depression. Mm. And my parents tried. I'm not going to say they didn't. Like you're a mom, you know, you know, we think we know what's best for our kids. We don't like, I know somewhere in their head, they thought, you know, we just want him to have something bigger than himself. You know, we, my parents and I've had these conversations, like they have apologized because they didn't know how detrimental it was, Mm. but you also didn't create a space for me to feel safe to tell you this either, because I thought if you knew you wouldn't love me anymore and and no one in the church would love me. Like, are y'all going to drown me in the baptism? Like, I don't feel safe here. How am I going to tell you Mm. how I'm feeling? You know, how how do you expect a child to do that? You're the parent. It's your job to know that it's not okay. And you're not creating that space for me. Mm. So from the time I was about 13 to 17, I lost about, I don't know, 60 pounds. I wish I had some photos that I could put up with this episode, but I was about 165 pounds and I'm, I'm six feet. So just imagine what that looks like. It's not healthy. My parents forced me to go to therapy, which is one of the best things they ever did. And of course I refused to talk because what do we need to talk about? I'm gay. My parents think I'm going to burn in hell. I'm fucked up. I'm a disgusting human. What do we need to talk about? Mm. And so my parents were taking me to all these doctors. I was getting all these pills that I just refused to take. And I got a knife and I slid a hole in the side of my mattress. My my bed was up against the wall. And I would just take those pills and just shove them in my mattress. Just fill up. I was filling up the mattress with pills. And I remember one time... Uh, my mom had went in and was like making my bed because gay, straight, whatever, boys are disgusting at 13. No way to get around it. Just <laughs> boys are gross. And she was, I don't know what she was doing. Maybe she was snooping. I don't know. But, you know, she went to flip the mattress and just pill. <laughs> Thinking back, it's just kind of funny because it was literally like some show. I just, she just flips it and just pills. Just- <laughs> Rolling everywhere. <laughs> and she's like, what is this? You don't want to get better. I'm like, what do you get better? How? How am I supposed to get better? What do you want me to do? How am I supposed to get better? You know, it was such an awful point in my life. And I was bullied at school, you know, bullied in the church. I just didn't feel good. And then, you know, Rachel and I met and we got married. And I felt a safety net with her for the first time ever because she knew who I was and she was fine with that. She was good with that. And, you know, I started dressing feminine and I started to be more open. And then just like I knew it, people were then in the church going to Rachel saying, I don't know how you can marry a fag. How can you have sex with a faggot? 
And then people that I've known, like this, this elderly woman that I had known basically my whole life, she was like a grandmother to me, wouldn't speak to me anymore. Yeah. Told Rachel how disgusted she was with me. And that's not love. Like no. there is not, that is not love. And it's just, it, it fucks up your whole view of yourself, at least for me, like my experience, it fucked up my whole view and how I see myself. And I never, even at 36 years old, just truly stepped into who I am. I, I feel like I'm constantly playing different versions of myself. Mm. You know what I mean? And just doing it with a safety net mm. and you know, I felt a safety net because I've had Rachel. Because it's okay to be gay when you have a wife. Mm. There's a safety net there. Do you see? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or you know, being a witch online, not a, a witch online, but you know, sharing it online or sharing your femininity online. There's a safety net there. It's mm. not every day. You know, I've been living so much of my life with safety nets and it's just getting to this point where like, I don't want the safety nets. I just want to embrace myself and just live my authentic self. Does that, does any of this make sense? It does. And that's so beautiful. And I can see you coming to that place in your life too. Like, um, not that we'll probably get into details, but you're, you're removing layers I feel like you're you're getting rid of layers, you know, and right now you're in this space of just raising all of that shit to the ground, you know, right and, right. and exposing the gorgeousness of who you are and that is what you're stepping into. You know, I think next year is going to be a really exciting year. Like you're just going to fucking emerge. <laughs> emerge like a pearl. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh it's, it is true. It's just, I, I, I go through these phases where, and we had talked a little bit before we started recording. So I, I think you can relate to this. I, I go through phases and it's typically because of Hecate, like that deity connection where they bring something to your attention that maybe you're not ready to validate. <laughs> you're not ready to hear. You don't want to accept. And no matter how old we get, I still feel like there is so much to learn from my past mm. in order to create the future that I want. And I have to, I, I've done a lot of work. Like I'm not going to discredit myself. I know that I've done a lot of work and a lot of healing and a lot of progress, but I know that there's still a lot more that I have to do to be able to feel comfortable um, and that's like when we're talking about deity, that's why I, I don't work with men. Like I, I don't work with male spirits. It makes me highly uncomfortable, even working with men, like just men in general, it makes me uncomfortable because I just feel like they want to hurt me or they want to take something from me. Mm. It doesn't matter. Um, and I think I've told I, I may have told you about this. I don't know, but I did tell Brittany about that. It just, it's this deep seated fear that just doesn't go away. Even when I know the men aren't going to hurt me, I still have this visceral fear mm. of, of men, like an uncomfortability. If I'm alone with like even Anthony, you know, I love Anthony. He would never, I know he would never hurt me or let somebody hurt me. Or even, you know, friends of mine and their husbands who accept me, 
it's still a fear. Like, what if they don't? Because I've just been hurt by so many men. And then my whole life, I've been condemned in the name of a man. In the name of Jesus, I am condemned. Mm. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because I'm not man enough. I'm not masculine enough. And in turn, you're also diminishing the power of femininity and the power of women. Because what man would want to relate to women? Do you know what I'm saying? It's a complete breakdown of power. Uh, The whole system is just fucking disgusting. And it scarred me so deeply. Mm. Well, I think like with these things, like awareness is always the first step. Okay. So um, Crimson Fire says awareness, clarity, action. So I find often it's the clarity stage that many of us get stuck in, you know, like, what do I do to help myself here? Like, what is the aha moment, you know? Um, But I think sitting in awareness is always the start and it's never a linear process and it's never a process that has to take a particular time. And with all of the things that we've been through in our life, I find that all of these lessons or the things that we come around to are always cyclical. So it's like we we may deal with a little bit of the male wound, for example, and then you're like, oh, sweet, like that was a cool breakthrough, like I'm feeling good for three months, and then like something else comes up again. You're like, oh, my God, like didn't I deal with this already? <laughs> but every time right. it comes around, it's a little different, and that wound can get cleared a little more, you know, each and every time. I wanted to ask you too, I was thinking of this when you were talking, because Growing up, my mother and I were always very close. She was always, I always felt like she was an advocate and I could trust her more. You know, I just felt more connected to her in that way. And then my mom had brain surgery and that's a whole different story, but she's crazy now. Um, And as I've gotten older, I've felt more comfortable and safe with my dad. So the dynamic has changed. And there was a mourning that had to happen for mine and my mother's relationship because we just don't have the same relationship anymore. And she's super bothered by the queer aspect of who I am as a person. She just can't get past it, which in my opinion, she has some internalized homophobia. That's just the read, like, that's just something that I get from her. So I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you talked a lot about your hatred of your mother, hatred of yourself and like the mommy issues. What about your father? Like, did that manifest as like did were any daddy issues manifested you know the leaving aspect like how what was that like for you because you haven't really talked about that no, too much so, so. I have daddy <laughs> issues definitely so for me I with the mum stuff I didn't realize I had mum issues for a really really long time like I had no idea and you know I was feeling all those emotions as a teenager um so I kind of knew that, but I didn't even realize that it was mummy issues until probably a few years ago, which is crazy. Um, but daddy issues, I knew I had from day dot. Um, so <laughs> we had been to see some like child psychologists and things like that. And they were, one psychologist actually told me, so this was for the court. So we were going through a process at this stage. I was probably seven and my mom had divorced my dad by this stage and was getting remarried or had already gotten remarried at this point and so we were going through the courts um you know for various things to 
you know, it was about access visits and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, the psychologist actually said to me, you are going to end up with a person exactly like your father. And at the time, this was devastating news. And I was just like, this stuck with me all throughout my teenage years. And it was yeah. actually really funny. So I, I dated um, four different guys um, in my teenage years. And I'm with the fourth now, my husband, um, we stayed together. But <laughs> with the other three, they were all that they, they were all sort of fucked up relationships. But I said to myself, they're nothing like my dad. Okay. My dad's a white Australian. One of them was Greek, one of them was Sudanese, and the other one was Sri Lankan. I'm like, they're nothing like him. <laughs> Just going on the hunt friend. for any man who's not even remotely <laughs> like my dad. I don't care if I love him, as long as he's not like my dad. <laughs> if he's a different ethnicity, then obviously he's different to my dad. But of course, that is not the case. That's not how that works. Um, there was all these things that I was playing out in those relationships from him. Um, but yeah, my, the thing with my dad is weird, and it's something that is actually still a thing today. So um, my parents, yeah, were splitting up ever since I can remember. Um, my dad, I think he's ultimately a good person. He just didn't know how to be a dad. Um, both of them were very young. So um, 21 and 22 when they had me, which was the same age that I and my husband were when we had my son. Um, just another generational pattern there. We have done the same thing. Like my parents, my dad was 26 when my parents got married and my mom was 19 and I beat her. I was 18 when I got married. And <laughs> I tell, I tell Penelope, don't you fucking get married. I tell her all the time. I'm like, I don't care. Do not have any kids until you're 30. Do not get married till you're 30. I don't care who you sleep with. I don't care. It's your vagina. Do what you want with it. I prefer if you sleep with women until you get married. I mean, until you're done with college. So we don't have any pregnancy scares. <laughs> but makes, like, it simple. <laughs> makes it simple. Take birth control when you're ready. You're on your period, like whatever you want to do, because it, it like somehow we do do that. Don't we? We fall into these generational weird traditions. And then come to find out my grandparents had my mother so my grandparents had lied about their wedding anniversary for years, years, up until a couple wow. of years ago when my grandfather died, we'd all been celebrating the wrong year of their anniversary because <laughs> she was pregnant before they were married. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they came from well-to-do families in Massachusetts. So you don't get pregnant before you're married. Mm -hmm. So they had to lie. And this whole time we're celebrating the wrong fucking anniversary. So it's, just, it's funny wow. to me that you bring up uh, generational... <laughs> generational patterns because it is a real thing it is and my grandparents were the same so um my grandma had my auntie who was the oldest i don't fully even know the story but i know she wasn't married she was living in poland at the time and this is way back when so definitely not okay um and I know there was a whole thing there. And then when she came to Australia, she met my grandfather, who's also Polish. Um, so they met here and then had my mum. But that was the same thing for her again. So it's just, it's very interesting how these things carry on. And I really think, I mean, we, we did a different um, episode on curses and we briefly spoke about generational curses and that kind of thing. And I think this is something that kind of falls roughly in, not that it's a curse, but there's generational patterns and they can be picked up so subconsciously. Like you cannot even know these facts about your family. And yet somehow, you know, through all these subconscious little 
things that of interactions that you have that's what ends up happening it's really bizarre and fascinating <laughs> it <laughs> is bizarre that. how that happens it is so how so what is your relationship like with your dad like what how did that okay, grow so like, into your adulthood i don't see him now um we had another kind of breakdown of relationship but we have an odd one so my dad and i are very similar and my mum and my sister who were close his closest to me in age is like they're very similar so i've always been my dad's favorite um i can definitely see that and his side of the family as well um like they just treated my sister a little differently it was interesting to see because i've never been the popular special one in any <laughs> in any part of my life except i guess for a couple of them you know i don't know whatever it is maybe they just see themselves in me or whatever but i my relationship with him has always been pain. Um, so, you know, he would he would yell and scream a lot. He would punch holes in walls. He never hit us. Um, but I was always scared when I was, not always scared when I was with him, but it would always happen at least once while I was with him. So we'd go and stay with him every second weekend. Um, and it would always happen that I would be scared of him. But... <laughs> childhood was very difficult for me like i've i'm someone who would describe myself very much i think sadness is the main emotion in me um and so i would be absolutely devastated every time i left my mum and would go to stay with him i would be you know i'd bore my eyes out and be so sad and then the same thing would happen again when i would leave him and go back home i would be devastated bawling my eyes out and i think um i actually have only just been realizing over the last couple of years that i absorbed all of his sadness as well i'm very empathic and that's not something i really talk about because everyone's a fucking empath now but it's a trauma <laughs> response absorbing other people's emotions yes. is a trauma response it's not a power although it can be used you know in, in that positive way. ways but the reaction of it is a trauma response. Um, so for me, guilt with him is something that I very, very strongly feel. Um, I always felt like I'm, I was responsible for his being okay, his happiness, whatever. I still feel like that now. I've got a lot of guilt not seeing him. Um, it's just, it's guilt and sadness. That is the relationship with my father. Um, which sucks. And he's a very kind of, he's always been good to me. Um, aside from, you know, the swearing and the just kind of being who he is very, he's a very aggressive, sad, kind of angry person. And I don't even know what his demons are, but I can tell you they're big, <laughs> whatever they are. Um, so yeah, we just kind of had that breakdown and, and I don't see him now. And I just don't know what to do with the relationship at this point. So it's something that's still kind of, it simmers there. I'm going through the process of trying to release guilt. Like I had this huge breakdown a couple of months ago when I was talking to my husband about this stuff, because this is, you know, sort of a fresh wave of it, I suppose. And he said to me, it is not your responsibility to look after him. Um, and a few other things. And I just broke and because I realized oh my god like ever since I was a baby I've been carrying this and I feel like it's my fault I feel like it's my responsibility I should be seeing him because he's my dad and I have um I have this come up a lot in my face actually through my work because I 
work with numerous people who aren't in contact with their children anymore. And they're the broke, hurt parent who desperately wants to be in contact with their child. So it's really confronting for me every time because it's about them, right? Like, obviously, I don't put my stuff onto anyone I'm working with as much right. as possible. Um, there's always subconscious stuff, of course. We can't help that. But as much as possible, I'm in my awareness and just supporting them but it's very interesting to have that mirror put up to me consistently, you know, of the child not seeing their parent. So that's where I'm at with my dad. Um, and like I said, there was a lot of kind of bad relationship experiences, which I think were the seed of that as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I find with him, like with the male thing, um, like you have this moving away from that male energy and I have a real moving towards, like I find that I just want to be, that little princess who is delighted in by daddy, you know, um, and in whatever way that plays out in my life. Yeah. I, uh, I was just thinking about when you were talking about being the favorite, um, I, I, I've never been the favorite ever. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm the only child. Uh, and I was thinking about when I was younger, I think a big part of my life as well, I can echo the sentiment of like a profound sadness. I think that I can relate to you on that level, just because I always feel invisible. I, I felt invisible. I, you know, I never, I don't take compliments very well. I don't really see myself in a way that I can't see any real accomplishments or substance to anything I do. Everything kind of feels blah, like mm -hmm. it's just not good enough. And I know that's an internal thing, but growing up, I grew up very close to my cousin. So I have an older cousin, male cousin, and then there's me and then a younger female cousin. Uh, and we always grew up super close to one another and their mom was married to a man who had substance abuse issues that led to divorce. So they had a lot of difficulties growing up. My parents were pretty much stable financially. So a lot of the family um, focused on them. And I can remember going to our grandparents' house and I can remember looking and just seeing pictures of them all over the walls and not seeing any pictures of me yeah. and kind of just kind of re reiterates that invisibility and just not feeling value. And even now I can, I, I understand what you mean, not in a parental way, but in a family unit way of just not feeling connected to my family. I never have felt fully connected and loved by my family. I just, I just haven't. I don't think that I fit mm -hmm. into that unit. And my younger cousin the female cousin who's a couple years younger than me, we still talk and we try to connect. And we've had conversations over the years about how I felt and she's apologized. And I've told her, there's no reason for you to apologize. You were a kid. You didn't do anything wrong. Like it was, it wasn't you. you, it's not your fault, but it doesn't mean that it, you know, I didn't feel these things. And she's like, I'm just sorry you felt that way. But even now, like even as an adult, I just never felt the support or the love or the care, the, the concern for my family. And as a result of that, I've just chosen to search for a, fa a family unit outside of that, you know, with, with friends, like with you, with Brittany, mm -hmm. with finding people that do choose me and investing in those relationships rather than feeling like I need to invest in people that I don't feel like 
care about me. I think they love me. And if something happened, they would care. But outside of some extenuating circumstance, I'm not a part of their daily thought process. Like they don't think about me or include me or, you know, that's not something that they care for. And why force somebody to do something that they don't want to do? I shouldn't have to make you love me. I shouldn't have to make you care about me or want to spend time with me. And it's not my responsibility to keep this family together. Mm-hmm. You know, For like sure. why? Why? And it's sad because we grew up so close to one another and we all have kids mm-hmm. and just it's weird how things change, you know, because I, I always grew up thinking families were supposed to sp- spend weekends together because we did but not that way it's funny how things shake out isn't it i um on that note so i did mention that i was my dad's favorite but i never like i didn't really mean anything because i was hardly with him with my mom (laughs) i had the thing where like i always like her and I constantly fought and I was constantly doing the wrong thing. And she was always like standing up for my sister and like protecting her and, you know, making sure like she was always the one, you know, the shining golden child. And she literally is a shining golden child. Like she's beautiful. She's tall. She's like willowy. She's naturally blonde. She's fucking gorgeous. <laughs> and we get along very well now. Um, and we did a lot of the time when we were kids too, because we were, you know, with each other the whole time. Um, and I do feel like in a lot of ways, because I was older and we were so close and we were going through all of this shit together, I really took the brunt of everything that was happening. Um, I don't actually know how she feels about this, but I've, I've sort of spoken to other people in similar situations and that can be how it kind of feels like the younger one kind of, you know, can sort of feel safe behind the older one, you know, not to say that they don't have their own trauma and terrible things they go through as well. Um, But that was, I think, part of why I came to the space, other than all of my own internalised shit, but why I came to the space of really hating mum, you know, when when those hormones kicked off and my mind went crazy, um, you know, was because it was constantly always about my sister you know, and, and I was someone who, like I said, I'm a deeply emotional person and everything that happened in my childhood, like affected me so much. And I am quite expressive as well. Again, generally only with the people that I know really well, but I am a very expressive person. Leo son. Hello. Um, so she, you know, was constantly just trying to, um, not calm me down, but, you know, she saw a lot of the faults in me that my dad had, which was, I think, that that mirroring there, which was very, mm-hmm. very bad for us. And I will say that um, I'm, I feel very lucky that my mum and I do get along now. Um, she doesn't, she doesn't know a lot about me. <laughs> she doesn't know about this whole witchery stuff. She knows that, you know, I'm not in the church and something's going on with me, you know, but <laughs> something's going on. Something's afoot here. On, but where, where of the ilk of like, just sweep it under the rug and pretend you can't see it. Like that's kind of how we roll. So I'm happy with that. That's fine with me. Um, but we actually, we started getting along once I had my son. So once he came along, um, because I hadn't spoken to her really, there was like a good, there was a good year I didn't even talk to her when I left home. It was very bad. Um, But it was once I had him, the relationship started to mend. And probably at that point, she let go a little bit as well, you know, because I know that she loves me and I know that she wanted the best for me. 
and you know she had all of her like I mean two divorces before the age of 40 like that's awful you know and after becoming a parent I have so much more compassion for her and my dad and so much more understanding of why they were the way they were you know it's like it's fucking hard being a parent like if you are in a stable loving relationship and you know you've got a village to help you with your child it's a hard job <laughs> let alone if you're on your own and dealing with your own trauma and whatever so um yeah I don't think we've got time to get into it today but I have a whole trauma story around childbirth as well <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I, I know what you mean by uh after you're a parent you do look at your parents differently I, I'm trying to think if I have a positive spin I don't feel like I do I do have <laughs> I mean I do have empathy for them since having Penelope and you know Peyton I I, I have found empathy for them mm-hmm. I think more so my biggest takeaway was their falters you know the things that they weren't quite able to get right is what kind of sits with me the most and being aware of the emotional support is something I never had and checking in and being able to talk about your feelings in a judgment-free zone, you know, because we were able to talk and I, I had a voice in a conditional way as a child. Yeah. More it always so felt like that's me too, conditional. Yeah. Conditional. Now I was be I was able to be much more outspoken than my counterparts, like the other children in the church. I was much more free to joke around and be funny. And me and my mother had a very similar sense of humor, which my dad did not like, nor did he get. He found it highly inappropriate. But my mother and I connected on that level. You know, she was from Massachusetts, he's from Mississippi, and that northern kind of philosophy I picked up on. And so we connected like that. And, you know, I was able to have a voice in the household conditionally. But, you know, having Penelope and her being a 10-year-old girl, I just, I see the holes that my my parents weren't able to fill and the emotional need and the connectivity and processing emotions and all of that stuff that I felt I lacked as a child. Like I didn't get the opportunity to do that. And the big overarching theme, I think for all of this is just not being able to find your own identity, not being able to feel like you've been empowered to make your own decisions about who you are as a person and kind of be able to be free thinking. Like you're not able to have discernment in your life as to, you know, who you are and what you believe and who you want to be as a person and to feel that actual unconditional support and unconditional love to be able to say, I don't agree with you, but I want what's best for you Hmm. at the same time, you know, and it's not a condescending thing and it's not conditional. It's unconditional. (laughs) And that's not something that I think a lot of children feel when they grow up in the church it's, mm. it's very much, you know, it's, it's transactional. You do what I want and you'll get love. You do this, you, you do what the Bible says and you get love. And if, you know, it, it's just, it's really a huge brain fuck. And all of those things continue to affect us in our daily life and our relationships, the way we parent, how we work, you know, our, our platonic friendships, it affects everything. And it's like, 
I feel like those years in the church, it takes just as many years to try to deconstruct, Mm. but you can't even deconstruct it until you, like you said, like clarify actually what the issue is, like what happened and how it's manifested. And only then can you actually think, okay, like you were saying, now what action are we going to take to correct that? It's like a whole, yeah, it's like you're the second part of my life can be the life I was always meant to live. Does that Mm. make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. I so believe that too. Like I think the desires that we have, we have them for a reason. Like we have them because they are ours. They are for us. Um, It's just a matter of untangling and aligning (laughs) with those things, you know. And I feel like, like all this stuff we've talked about today, like witchcraft is what has brought so much healing to me I guess the process the action the environment of witchcraft um, and that's why it's something that I'm so in love with and I'm kind of I'm I think a lot of witches are the same but I don't believe that like witchcraft's the answer but I believe that the way of expressing spirituality and moving through the world of magic is something that really works for some people you know, and it works for me. And that's why I've come to the space of, even though it's (laughs) contrary to everything I grew up uh, knowing or being told, um, you know, all the people I was around and all that kind of stuff, like I'm comfortable with where I am now and where I'm moving to, um, because I know it's brought so much healing to me. And I mean, that's what my husband saw too, because he was a Christian as well, went to the same school as me. We have a very similar kind of environment. And I started doing witchcraft on the DL, right? Um, but once he discovered it, he'd already seen changes in me. And he was like, okay, I can accept that this is a good thing for you. It's yeah. true. And the, it's not even, I think this may be a hot take, but I don't even think it's, I think there's an aspect of healing that goes with the practice of witchcraft, but I think a big, big part of it is the psychological effect that it has. Because when we are raised to believe a certain way of connecting to a higher power is to be subservient and to change innately who we are as people, and then we can connect to some sort of power and not have to change who we are, that's healing just in and of itself, to be able to connect to power and just be innately who we are. And there's no sorry. Isn't it? It's like worship versus working with. That can be huge for us. Massive. Yeah. Yes, 100%. And I agree with you. I don't think that witchcraft is the end all be all, but I think it's a beautiful place to start uh, Mm. to sit in that power, to own your power, to use it as a clarifier for for these traumas and to find some sort of empowerment. Now, obviously witchcraft is not a substitute for mental health and we are not mental health professionals. Mm. Just saying all that, you should seek mental health professionals you know, professionals for it's trauma. One tool. It's one tool in a, tool in a box, toolbox. Is, yes. A hundred percent. But there is something definitely transformative about it that you just can't, mm. can't deny it. Cause I don't know that I would be where I am if I didn't have my practice and mm. feel I know like I, I have, been. right. And, and have the, feel like I have the freedom to explore and listen yeah. to stories and hear stories and understand this is why 
you know, I wanted to start this podcast a year ago is because I really, truly believe our trauma, trauma leads to witchcraft. All of us are here because of trauma in some aspect. And through our trauma, we're all connected. And I, that's really why, you know, I wanted us to do this episode. And I am so thankful to you, Albaline, for opening up and sharing, you know, things that are uncomfortable because it is uncomfortable. Because when you, it, it's not fun to be vulnerable. That's just the no. easiest way to say it. It's just not. Bringing light to the shadows is, is not, it doesn't feel good, but it's ultimately healing. It is healing, and I think it it allows an opportunity to be self analytical about it. And and I feel like sometimes when I talk about it, I remember certain things, or it ignites a feeling that I have forgotten. And it's like, oh, huh, that's interesting. Like like think- like you were saying, like, huh, I didn't <laughs> think I was going to feel that way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what is what what is that? <laughs> Yeah, that is. I think that is the beauty of um, finding someone that you can talk to about these things and just process. I mean, process in whatever way because, you know, everyone's different. Um, there's external processing and there's internal processing and both are very important. Um, and we're all, I mean, this life is a journey. I think that took me a long time to accept. I remember realising <laughs> that I would always be dealing with my own inner pain and that was a horrible realization at the time. Like, again, one of those moments that broke me. Um, but now I get it. You know, we're like, this life is a journey. And once the journey's over, we're dead. And that's as simple as it is, really. You know, you just <laughs> keep going I, until it's done. Yes, I can relate to that. Because you, you think that there's a finish line. Mm. And there just isn't. You just, yeah, you just, and here we go another day. <laughs> we got to keep. <laughs> going gotta got to keep dealing with that it it is it's true it's it's uh a juvenile thought process that eventually Mm. fades away yeah and you just realize okay i'm gonna have to deal with this forever i think there's a lot of there's a lot of adults that still don't know that though and i certainly get into stages where do you know what i mean like i have those moments where i feel exactly the same um so i think it's something that we need to consistently remind ourselves of particularly when i think in those moments where old wounds or old lessons come around again, like we were talking Agreed. about, it's always cyclical. Those are really hard moments, particularly if it's like a hard thing that you have worked a lot on. It sucks when it comes up again. Um, so reminding self, this is a journey. It's a cyclical thing. It's all good, you know, mm-hmm. and just taking like whatever comes up, whatever awareness happens, um, hopefully there's clarity, but all of that is all for the good ultimately you know it's all going to help you even if it's like one tiny little thing that you get from you know that particular wound coming up again that particular moment that process that you have to go through and however long it lasts and however painful it is like there's something good that's going to come out of that you know the diamond in the rough yes and there is some truth in the the saying that in that uncomfortable space there's an opportunity to grow and there is an opportunity to heal so we can't run from trying to heal those wounds. You know, I'm a big compartmentalizer. I don't mm-hmm, recommend same. it, but, no. but I do. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's not healthy. Like we got to, you have to face it. And then when you react a certain way, you have to be aware like, okay, wow, maybe I'm not as far on that journey as I thought I was. 
yeah. with that. Wow. Okay. You know, maybe I need to look into that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I find I we'll do. talk more about this next time, I believe, but I find deity work um, or work with spirits, whatever the, whoever the spirit might be, whether they're deity or whoever else can be really helpful. Agreed. Really, like it just creates that space. Um, there is, I wouldn't even know how to describe it, but there is a certain um, feeling that comes with working with a higher power, whatever that higher power may be, that I don't think we can get on our own, you know, like leaning into that and, you know, finding the space of comfort, you know, whether it's a male figure or a female figure or a a non-human figure or whatever, we've got to find that space for ourselves. Um, but that can be a really, really helpful tool as well, leaning into something larger than ourselves to hold the space for us while we deal with all of our shit. Well, yeah, I think it's because culturally when you're talking to spirit or something bigger than you, it is a form of consent and acknowledgement that you are valid. You know what I mean? It's something outside of yourself that Mm -hmm. says, yes, you are real. Yes, this is real. Yes, what your experience is real. Mm -hmm. That's how I think of it anyway. Like God, you know, when you pray, whatever you're, it's that humility that we do need to feel at some point you know what i mean like it's it's human there's nothing wrong with feeling feeling humility or approaching deity in a subservient way if that's what you choose to do but there is something powerful about that interaction okay let's okay we're gonna wind up going all (laughs) into that that's a whole nother we're we're heading into next next time's podcast is what we're doing (laughs) yeah next episode but I think we're going to close this up, but I do just want to say if you were struggling with mental health, there's plenty of resources. I will leave links down below. Um, We hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and, you know, we want to be able to be vulnerable and share and connect with you guys on a more personal level. Um, So feel free to leave your comments and your thoughts down below and I think we are doing spirit work, deity. Yes. Mashup. The next episode. So, you know, you guys have been super supportive this whole season. Uh, mm-hmm. Alvin and I have talked about this pretty regularly and it's just mm-hmm. really lovely to see your comments on YouTube and Spotify and Apple podcasts and just everywhere you guys have been interacting uh, because we've been enjoying this and mm-hmm. we're trying to s- still find our rhythm. <laughs> We are. <laughs> we are. But it's nice to just be able to come here in our jammies. So we appreciate y'all your support. <laughs> so uh, I guess that's it for this episode. So until next time. Bye, guys. Bye.